Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My name is Jeremy Gage, and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between to sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro, but like I always say, it's never about me. Today, I've brought a really cool guest. Outside of the Brain Trust, met on the Twitter.coms, as it's called, I've brought to you today a fiction writer, game designer, audio engineer, has been on the 15 Minutes of Fave podcast. I would like to welcome to the show Tracy Barnett. Ah, <sighs> uh, that crowd noise does it for me every time. It's really good. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Tip your waitress. Try the veal. <laughs> The classic. Thank you for being here, Tracy. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Uh, This is uh, a show I really enjoy listening to, and I'm very pleased to be on it. (sighs) My heart swells. As always, including plugs and everything like that, would you Mm -hmm. give just a brief introduction of who you are to people who may not be aware of who you are? Sure. My name is Tracy Barnett. I am, as Jeremy noted, a writer, game designer, podcaster, audio engineer, I do layout. I I have worked very, very diligently to kind of become a a person of all trades and it is now paying off. It's, it's kind of nice. So I design games nominally under the other dev productions because my handle everywhere online is the other Tracy. No, not that Tracy, not that one. The other one. I, I, I know a couple of other Tracys in real life and they're absolutely very jealous of my handle. It makes me very happy. <laughs> so yeah, I have uh, a bunch of small games that I publish on itch and drive through RPG. I have done some larger projects. I freelanced for a bunch of different companies. I have done actual play podcasts. I have my own podcast, 15 minutes of fave, as you noted. And yeah, I'm never doing one thing at a time. So there's always a lot of irons and a lot of fires. And I am working now to try and get all of that streamlined. And I think I've overcome a big hurdle in that uh, recently. So all the things that I, I do can point toward 
revenue for me to live my life because that's what we have to do right now. As Mm -hmm. you and past guests have noted, uh, we all live under the thumb of capitalism and (laughs) I have made it part of my job to figure out how to get good at that without selling my soul away. Yeah. Yeah. Play. I hate the game, not the player for sure. That's exactly right. Yeah. In addition, as icebreakers go on the show, mm-hmm. why don't you, if you can, sort of give us a game design journey, if you will? Because it sounds like you've been doing this for a while. You've been attached to the industry for uh, a minute here. And what was maybe like the first role-playing game that really got you into the hobby? And what was maybe the first game that said, that told you you could be a game designer? Sure. So like so many people, I started with Dungeons and Dragons back in the day. I had cousins that had the, the, the red box from, you know, 1987, whatever iteration of basic D and D that was. I got it. I had that in the expert box. I never really played. I was into the Baldur's Gate video game not Mm -hmm. too long after it came out in, you know, the late nineties. And in college I had some coworkers who knew I was into that game and were like, hey, we're playing D&D 3rd Edition when it launches, because this was before 3rd Edition had officially come out. Mm. Would you like to play with us? And so my first actual foray into playing was was D&D 3rd Edition. And through that process of playing that game, I had to eventually decide that I want to play D&D or Magic more, because I was spending too much money on both. And <laughs> D&D won out. I think there were only four or five books that I never owned for 3.5, and then I ran my first game with fourth edition, which was a joy to to learn. How, I mean, it was a game that actually taught you how to run an mm-hmm. RPG, which was great. I was bad at the tactical part of it because it was six minds versus my one. Yeah, yeah. And right around that time, I was listening to a, a now defunct podcast called The Gamer's Haven. And they were doing actual play. Now it was not edited. These were just, they put an Olympus voice recorder down in the middle of their game table and they would just record their session audio and post it up. So it was like four and a half, six hour long sessions, just raw, Mm -hmm. but you got to know who those people were. And when they did an in-person convention in Kansas city for the first time, I drove out for that in 2009, I think was the first public one, maybe 10. And that's where I learned about games that were not D and D. So Savage Worlds was my first introduction. And over the next few years, I was tinkering with system or with setting stuff. I didn't consider myself a systems person. And then I was actually driving back from a trip to visit all of my friends out there in Kansas city for new year's. And there was a joke on Twitter about having ranks in lank, like it's a D&D skill because I'm six foot five, long and lanky. Yeah. Yeah. And I started rhyming things and I realized, because I was also in a master's program to get my teaching degree, I realized I was describing high schoolers, ranks in lank, tank, bank, jank, clank, right? And they all rhymed. And that was the genesis of my first game, School Days. So I had been on Twitter for a while. I'd gotten to know people in the D and D community specifically when five E was announced at uh, DDXP in 2012. I was the only person live tweeting the announcements. So my follower count skyrocketed. And like three months later, I ran my first Kickstarter for school days, which had a $3,000 goal and funded at like six and change, I think. And that was in 2012. So I have been doing this for the better part of 10 years now. Wow. And I have run 
Uh, let's see. Quick count. Created projects. View all. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten Kickstarters of my own and have consulted on five others, six others, mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. So like Kickstarter has made my career what it is because it's how I learned how to do all of this. Now I've, I've changed my focus a lot. Like my first, my first projects were, were bigger games, right? And I even at one point in time funded to publish somebody else's game. And I've realized since what I'm good at and what I'm bad at, and I have switched my focus, I now do a lot of my own everything. Like if I write a small game, I write it and revise it and lay it out and do all the graphic design and publish it. So I don't need Kickstarter for that kind of thing, right? I do Kickstarters for games that where I, where I either need a chunk of money, right, to, to fulfill part of the project, or there's going to be a physical component because it sh- doesn't really have a great way to do physical stuff. Yeah. So at this point in time on my itch page... I have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, uh, 25, 26 published titles. Nice. Yeah. And that's the bulk of those have come in the last three years mm-hmm. or so because I've learned how to take the stuff that's in my head and the little ideas that I'm like, okay, what about a game like this? And I can start writing it and mechanics just start popping onto the page. And if I realize it's a dead end idea, I just shelve it or I make a whole game and mm-hmm. just write it and lay it out and off we go. If it's a larger project, cause I've got a, a few of those in the works. I am now not under any kind of like deadline pressure. I'm working on three larger games sort of, all at the same time right now. And I'm just writing them as I write them. I'm setting up some artificial deadlines for myself, you know, if I, if I need to for some of them to get work done, but you know, it's all self-imposed stuff. There's no real time frame on getting this done because I don't need the big projects to survive or to validate myself any longer. I just work on things that I want to work on. And I found ways to focus in on the things that are potentially going to be more successful financially and make things that I want to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We were talking about this slightly with Tyler Crumrine and Adam Bell. And we were also talking about this on the Colin show, which if you're not listening to the Colin show, listen to the Colin show, Adam E. Bell on Twitch. But we had a question about how to decide what to make when it comes to making a game. Like, do you follow your creative passion within yourself or do you some do something more of the business route in terms of like, what are people latching onto and creating? And so I find that really interesting to, I don't know. I don't know if too many guests have said this before. I think Aaron Lim said something this effect as well. Similar to like, you have a bunch of projects that you're working on all one time. Adam, mm-hmm. Adam Bell's like this too. And you just sort of work on what you feel you have the, the juice for. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that. I love presenting that there's not like the 
maybe assumed way is that you have one game, you work on it all the way through, and then you move on to your next project. But I think, for me, I don't think that's how the human brain works. I think the human brain's very, like, firing off in different directions all the time. When you're sleeping, you're thinking about your competitive fighter. When you're awake, you're thinking about your... Uh, D&D hack when you're in the middle of your lunch break you're thinking about how to make two people kiss in a game and have that mm-hmm. feel good right and I, I love that you've presented that yeah it I have sometimes wistfully wondered what it would be like to really be able to give one game a lot of focus mm-hmm. but I have always been a first draft is final draft kind of person It's Mm -hmm. taken a lot for me to be comfortable with someone else editing my work or even rereading it myself and going, yeah, no, I need to change this. This isn't, this isn't right. And it's a skill set that I've had to put a lot of effort in to develop. But even still, there's a, a point in time where either by dint of lack of focus or because I am, I've hit the, the sort of notes I want to hit, I go, yeah, this thing's done. The game's done. It's what I want it to be. Mm. Out we go, right? It's going to go into the world. Mm. And that's usually smaller games, you know, that are, that I handle that way. The, the larger ones, I like to have ways to play test them. I like to have ways that other people can interact with them. But a lot of my larger games are all based on fate, either core or accelerated. I'm not, I'm doing something with condensed now. Mm-hmm. And so I don't even play test those a ton because fate works like it's a whole yeah, the functional system is solved. Yeah, right? it's a whole functional system. And so unless I'm making massive changes to it, which for for one game I am, I'm swapping out the fate dice for D6s and doing some other stuff like I need to play that and make sure that what I'm thinking actually will work. But I've gotten to the point, you know, almost a decade in now that even if something isn't a hundred percent functional, like I still want it to be out in the world more than I want to tinker with it and massage it into perfection. Right. Like mm-hmm. p- if people engage with it and interact with it and go, Hey, this is kind of, this is kind of broken. Then I can go back when I have, I'm in a different headspace and fix it. It's PDFs. It's digital. I can change this stuff up whenever I need to. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I just put out small weird things that I want to put out and, you know, make sure that I'm satisfied with the effort of it. Uh, and sometimes things I put out, I just know are good. Like the game that I sent you prior to this, you were the dungeon. Mm-hmm. That good. was, a, you, you would call it a fever dream game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I had uh, a conversation at a meeting with Jeff Stormer, the absolutely fantastic, phenomenal personage that is Hi, Jeff. Jeff Stormer. Hi, Jeff. And, we were talking about marketing and he educated me on the idea of the marketing funnel. The, the, the brief sort of, uh, description of this is you think of all of your efforts as getting people to go from people who know, who have, who have heard about your thing to people who know about your stuff, to people who have bought your stuff, to people who are fans of your stuff and start talking about it. And that spreads the word out more and everything just rolls into this, this funnel. Interesting. Yeah, it's 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 not like necessarily just 101, maybe it's a 102 like marketing concept, but it's mm-hmm. it's a whole thing. So we were talking about this. We had this meeting, my brain was kind of on fire, and the next day I needed to find 
an allegory to process this and get some idea of what it was. So I wrote a tweet thread about you being the dungeon in a marketing sense, like your call stretching, stretching out to the, to the lands and everyone, you know, coming and exploring and, you know, engaging with you and leaving forever changed by the experience, like a real gritty, grim, dark, old school dungeon crawl type experience. I've recently started bookmarking my good threads. So there's that thread if you want to check it out. And I realized as I was writing this thread that it would also make a damn good game. So (laughs) I took the marketing idea that came from the marketing meeting with Jeff and I turned it into a game where you sit down as a solo player and you answer questions, you draw from a tarot deck to identify which adventurers are coming into your dungeon. You figure out what random events happen to them in the nightmare hellscape that is the inside of you. And you uh, roll a die to figure out how many survive. Mm -hmm. And then you do it all again. And at the start of this, you draw like a little map of your, of your boundaries, your humble beginnings. And then every, fallow season i called it in between when the time between adventurers new evil you know comes into your walls because like if you think of really old school dungeons like the caves of chaos and shit like that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's no narrative sense as to why all of this stuff is in one place it makes no sense a lot of old dungeons it's just like yeah there are goblins over here and the ochre jelly lives down there the ogres three flights up and take a right but you don't know how are all these things coexisting. Mm-hmm. So this game, you are the dungeon gives you a history for how this stuff happens, right? When the ogre decides to to move in, you literally expand your borders, right? You make new space mm-hmm. for the ogre. Cause you are a semi sentient, you know, dungeon being, mm-hmm. and you can theoretically play as many rounds of this game as you want. It can go on forever. There's a, a mega dungeon jam going on right now. And my intent is to sit down and play a bunch of rounds of my own game and make a mega dungeon from that, you know, cause I'm, I'm, I'm fast. Like I love, I've got some old school D and D supplements and like Undermountain is one of those places, mm-hmm. just this, the sprawling multi-level ridiculous complex. You could build an Undermountain with you or the dungeon. Yep. You know, it just takes enough, enough passes to make enough levels and to, you know, explain why all these evil things are lurking inside of you. Wow. First of all, way to smooth transition into one of the games we'd be talking about today. (laughs) (laughs) Basically covered in butter right now. But first of all, concept, like the concept of this being a way for you to apply the knowledge of this marketing funnel to cement it in your memory through game design is very, very cool. One of the things I've uh, maybe touched on once or twice throughout the show there's this book called How to Make Smart Notes. Super dry book, but it's it. the ultimate purpose of the book is to teach you a framework on how to record notes and then use those notes to create research articles and then you produce those articles. But one of the biggest pieces that I take from that book is that you don't really understand something until you can make other people understand it through your creation, right? Mm-hmm. So what I love about you using game design, I think there's been another guest Uh, on the show that has also talked about using game design to sort of hammer out or understand an idea or feelings. I think Aaron Lim has done this, and I also think, oh God, it'll come to me later. I'm sure I'll just yell in the middle of a sentence, but um, 
<laughs> just this idea of using the medium in which you want to express yourself to understand concepts in the real world is a very cool way to make game design. And I think it creates very strong thematic as well. Like you are the dungeon has a very strong thematic for being 14 pages. I believe it is 14 or 16 pages. Yes. And, and uh, a lot of, a lot of that's tables. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of it's tables. So like all the text is very evocative. You've captured that genre of the, like that gritty dungeon. And one of the things that I like about you are the dungeon as well is that when I I've played D and D and I've long since I haven't run a game for a while now, but one of the things that I've never thought about, or I have thought about <laughs> in my sleep and then I wake up and I run a session, I totally forget it. But like, what was the dungeon originally? Like some of the questions that you ask, I think a lot of people forget when they're running that style of, tavern taverns like game i use taverns sure. like like it's souls like <laughs> hey, no it's a, it's a you meet at the tavern style right mm-hmm. you're you're gonna the adventuring party is gonna get together over some tankards of ale they're gonna pump themselves up they're gonna hear a rumor <laughs> about this decrepit place over the hill that is yeah. always there that is never going away and they're going to go solve that problem right mm-hmm. and then they go in and it's like this darkest dungeon that was an yes. inspiration for this game right darkest dungeon and then also a dread singles on twitter uh, mm-hmm. at hottest singles mm-hmm. the not the way that jordan because uh, it's jordan's personal account now but it used to just be hot singles in your area mawing you know maws gaping wide <laughs> teeth covered in blood you know it was this very very particular way of writing and so i channeled like the feel of darkest dungeon and the tone of those old dread singles tweets mm-hmm. to put into this game like it the prose is you, you call it evocative a fiction writer will call it purple because it is <laughs> i threw every adjective at the yeah. at the at this thing that i possibly could and i deliberately used words in ways that they're we talked about this a little bit before we started recording words that they're not necessarily used in that way yeah but give you a sense of something else behind it Right. Mm-hmm, when, mm-hmm. when I say your blasphemous halls, what the fuck does it mean for a hall to be blasphemous? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, if you really want to break it down, yes, yeah, sure. There could be all kinds of iconography or, or, or whatnot, but just the mm-hmm. idea that this hall is blasphemous, like that evokes a sense. It's a, a an emotional pressure that it brings. And I want whoever's playing this game to read those sentences and to go into the story with that kind of emotional weight attached to it, mm-hmm. because you're going to end up creating a place that is grimly, beautifully tempting and oppressive and is absolutely going to mangle any adventurer foolish enough to walk into it. it, it it's just it's a really. Now, the, all out, the only word I want to use is evocative, uh, <laughs> it, but it that, that I there are times when I've just written games to get an idea out of my head. Oh, I think this is a cool thing. I've talked it over with a friend, whatever I'm going to write this game. And then this game is one of the few where I specifically wrote to accomplish a specific purpose. Mm. Like when you are playing rounds of this game, you are building a dungeon map. Mm-hmm. It's, it's an artifact that gets left over when you're done and you know, what's in there. You could use it in any fantasy you know, gaming context that you wanted to. You could easily just write this and pop it down into a D&D campaign. Mm-hmm. But that was intentional. The tone of the place was intentional. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had this, that fever dream sense of I just need to get these words out. But there was a, an intentionality to it at the same time. And marrying those two things together 
made this so much stronger than it otherwise would have been. It's by far my most successful game on itch, like without question. As Adam noted in his his most recent episode, if you don't want to hear numbers, then close your ears for a second or two. But if I look at my at my analytics on itch, and I well, so I this was part of the solo but alone. Uh, bundle as well. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. some of the numbers are a little bit skewed, but downloads 835. Amazing. The next closest that was not part of some other giveaway or, or similar of my small games is generations, which is another solo journaling game, but it's 42, (laughs) right? Payments. 83 people have paid for you or the dungeon. The next highest 14. For my lyric game, Draw a Bath for Your Love. It's wild, the disparity between mm-hmm. all of this. I've made, You Are the Dungeon has made nearly $1,000 That's uh, in, in revenue since I released it at the end of November of 2020. It's currently mm-hmm. April of 21 when we're recording this. The next closest is 110. Like, it, it is far and away the most successful thing that I've done. It's It's unbelievable. And so I'm... Like part of me wanted to chase that formula of that kind of game, right? And make, I had had ideas that I may still do uh, for You Are the Tavern, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. To build a fantasy Mm -hmm. town around the the tavern that always seems to be in the middle of town. Still make it a little bit creepy. I had the idea to do uh, one that I was going to call You Are the Palace of Dreams, which would create a godly pantheon for Mm -hmm. a setting. Mm -hmm. I wanted... I wanted to do uh, You Are the Golden Throne, which creates like a city and an empire. Mm-hmm. And then You Are the Caravan. And if you play rounds of all, whatever, five or six that I just listed off, you've made a campaign setting. Yep. And it's a really cool idea, except that I went when I went to start writing You Are the Tavern, I was like, uh, the formula's not working. I'm not, the juice wasn't there, right? I, I, w- <laughs> I would have had to squeeze stone to get, to get it out. Yeah. And yeah. It, it wouldn't have been bad necessarily, <laughs> but I wasn't excited about it. Mm. So it started, I may go back and finish it. Like the moment of juice may come and mm-hmm. I'll be happy to dive back in if it does. But I, I think I would rather at this point in time, like revise you or the dungeon to, because right now it's eight and a half by 11. It's just single pieces of paper. I'd like to revise it down to five and a half by eight and a half. Mm-hmm. Which is, if you take an eight and a half by eleven piece of paper and you fold it in half, it's that size. And to make a a quick printed style, and do a Kickstarter for it. I, I was going to do a Zine Quest Kickstarter for it this last Zine Quest back in February, but I've got another project that I think is more important called Paper Arcade. It's a small anthology of four games, all by Black creators, right. and I've got a Black editor and a Black graphic designer. I'm only just doing the project. I'm not contributing to it. Mm -hmm. I did paper arcade back in 2020. I think it was, maybe it was 19, which was another four game anthology. And with everything that happened in June of 20, I wanted to focus on uplifting voices where I could. So that project is just kind of in the works because I'm not pressuring the designers to get their work done at any specific time. Like if I'm going to support people, I want to actually support them. And if their lives are chaotic because they're marginalized people existing in a world that hates them Mm -hmm. and that makes it hard to write a game. Yeah, it does. 
I'm yeah. not going to, I'm not going to put yeah. extra pressure on you. So as of this recording, there's like a, there's a soft deadline of if I get the paper arcade games from those creators in about a week or so, then I will be setting up that Kickstarter and it's going to go in May because I want to get it done before the baby comes. I'm having a, my, I'm not having, my partner is having a kid in June. So there's a lot of context for everything that I'm doing now. But if I don't get the games, then I'm going to take the Kickstarter I had set up for ZineQuest and I'm going to run that in May Mm -hmm. and do a revised version of You Are the Dungeon with print copies because, you know, in between the act of taking care of a child, I'm going to be bored. You know, mm-hmm. when she's asleep, I'm not, there's not going to be anything to do. So I can print and staple zines and put them in envelopes really easily. And having the extra revenue one way or the other in advance of a baby arriving, not a bad thing. So, so one way or the other, there's a Kickstarter probably coming in mid-May, uh, but I just don't know which one it's going to be yet. That's all amazing, amazing stuff. The collaboration efforts that you've made for individuals in the space of marginalized focus is very cool. So thank you for that. And to speak on the other UR entities of the UR Dungeon franchise, I think <laughs> yes, that franchise, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. What I was going to say is that I think it's a very like hackable concept. And, you know, I don't want to say like it's an innovative concept by any means, because I'm sure there are other like frameworks out there that help you build out a dungeon. Like there's the, what is it called? The five room method or something like that that's mm-hmm. out there. But I love the sense of, like you could switch the genre and have an equally usable system, right? It seems like based on the two games that I've read of your 16, it seems like it's sort of framework focused in the mm-hmm. sense that you're you're helping to build the box in which the players will explore, right? Uh, especially that when is, we think about solo games yes. and stuff. That's 100% correct. I when I run games, I do not like the authoritative GM stance of I am the arbiter of this world Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. and here is here is the reality as it exists I'm going to give it to you and then only lightly respond to your input I want my table to be involved creatively Mm. not just what what do their characters do but what is the world like I encountered a, a method of sort of not setting building but providing setting specificity and context back in 20 would have been 2013, maybe even 2012. I'm not sure this person's designing games anymore, but it was, if you've read Ironetta and seen the question tables that I do on that for building your starting town, it's that system, right? Mm-hmm. You, you roll on a category of questions, you roll then to get a specific question and you answer it absent any other context. Like you sit down at a convention table or virtually nowadays and someone asks you, you know, the Jarl of your holdfast is decrepit and corrupt. Uh, what atrocities have they perpetrated and what are the residents of the holdfast preparing to do about it? Right. That's mm-hmm. not an act. I just came up with that question off the cuff because it, I, I know how to do this now, but you as the player, I've just said, okay, this game is about, uh, Ragnarok in the form of massive dwarven destroyers and humanity's fighting back with big bone giant mechs. There's your, there's your pitch. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all you know about the game. And then someone asks you that question, you might not know what a Jarl is. The word hold fast might need to be defined for you. Mm-hmm. But you think of a leader in a fantasy setting who's decrepit and corrupt, and you just start answering the question. Mm-hmm. And you, every group build brings their own version of a setting when they play it. Like, 
my forgotten realms is not your forgotten realms is not somebody else's forgotten realms. What I want to encourage is for there to be like pillars of setting material that are always true, no matter whose table you sit down at. Like, yes, there are always uh, bone bonded. There are always people who use runes of power. There are always warrior clans. These are the three pillars of what makes iron Edda iron Edda, regardless of what version of it it is. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, how you answer those questions, how your group crafts in that space, that's up to you. It's your table. It's your it's your story, right? Mm-hmm. So Ironetta, War of Metal and Bone, and Accelerated have holdfast creation questions, but like I'm working on a game called Valkyries, which is an Ironetta game now. It wasn't for a while, but it is now, where you answer questions about events on your ship in like far future sci-fi Norse myth inspired stuff. And you, depending on the crew members you have chosen to be on your ship, you get different questions and you get to describe what your ship is like. Cause that's the, the world, you know, that's your, your traveling hold fast, if you will, with the, I'm working on a space trucking game called long haul. You, depending on the part of the solar system, you start in the sun, earth, Mars, Jupiter, whatever, you have a list of NPC names with no context, just names, a list of business or location names, no context, just names. And then the questions pair an NPC with a location and ask you a question about your history with that, with that pairing of people. And the questions all shift. So there's six places and six people. The first question is one and one. Then the second question is two and two, three and three, so on and so forth. You go to the next category and it's one and two, then two and three. So Mm -hmm. if you get the same person coming up in multiple questions, if you've got like four or five players, suddenly there's context about this NPC that you knew nothing about before that you get to build out. And your, you know, Winslow Horvath III is this particular way in your game, whereas they may never come up in somebody else's game. That's a very, very roundabout way of saying that I like to give enough information for people to go on and then let them build their own context because there's going to be a thousand percent more buy-in and engagement on the part of the group if they get to do that than if I just say, well, the Forgotten Realms, uh, the world is called uh, Toro. world Bible, dude. <laughs> yeah. The world is called Toro. The continent is Faerun. You're going to be in the city of Waterdeep and... Great, that's fine, but it's all nonsense. It doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah, yeah. Right? If I say, here are three meaningful things, now answer a question. Mm-hmm. You're piecing together stuff and making meaning for yourself. Not only that, but you are also adding an enhanced mm, cognitive cementing when you're the one who's getting to add the detail, right? When you have to listen 100%. to someone sort of like, you know, you started you know, traditionally you start off a D and D campaign, you get a 45 intro of like, ah, and all the dragons across the land, Gvorthax and Kilathar. And then you get some King names and then some countries that you'll never visit because no plan survives the players. Like that stuff is not going to, they're going to ask you again, what's the name of the region we're in? What's the Mm -hmm. tavern we're in? Instead, if it comes from player a and then player c at the same time everyone else is like "Ooh, that's very cool let's all write that down right Mm -hmm. yeah and the the other part of it is that i also include a very basic like map making component to all Mm -hmm. these things so imagine like a quiet year right where Mm -hmm. you're answering questions and, and filling out a map 
every time you answer a question, you write something down on the map that re- represents your answer. So it's it's really basic stuff, but you get locations that you are invested in and that you know about. Mm-hmm. You know, there are plot hooks attached to all of that. And it works super duper well. Like, it's one of those things where when I demo Ironetta at a convention, whether it's War of Metal and Bone or Accelerated, because those are the only two versions that are out yet, in a four-hour slot, uh, with Accelerated especially, it will take 60 to 90 minutes to do the hold fast questions and finish characters. Mm-hmm. And if I tell people that up front, they, there tends to be a little resistance, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, we're, we're at a four hour convention slot and you're telling me that almost half the time is going to be taken up by this. And I go, yeah, go with it. <laughs> and then by the time we're finished with that, they are itching to play the story that they've created. Mm-hmm. Because suddenly they know the plot hooks. They know yeah. what this story is going to be about. We take a 10-minute break and we come back and we tell an amazing story together. I had, I tell this story almost every time I'm on a podcast and talking about Ironetta, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. Let's do it. At Origins some years back, I had gone way too hard in the paint on a Thursday night. And I had a 9 a.m. slot at Games on Demand. Mm-hmm. I was on four hours of sleep and hung over as, oh my God, it was amazingly bad. And I sat down at the table. There were four, four people I didn't know and two people that I knew. And the four people that I didn't know said, Hey, we have a couple friends who are going to be swinging by a little bit into the session. Is it okay if they just sort of hang out and watch? Because we're a group that used to play together in college. And the only time we get to meet up is at cons. I was like, yeah, that's fine. They can just sit and watch. When those two people showed up, there was like immediate chemistry. This like they obviously were a group of people that could interact together. Mm-hmm. So I said, all right, bring in two more chairs. Everybody scooch up. We're just going to do this. Lay down your tokens. And I ran for eight people, which is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I told I told them they need I, I explained the situation. I said, this is the state I'm in. Here's the game I want to give you. You all need to really bring it to the table for this to work. Mm-hmm. It was fantastic, right? A, a high, one of the high watermark sessions of that game. So Saturday night, the next day I've got another slot of games on demand. I come in to get ready. And the person who's doing muster and like filling the tables says, Hey, I know that it said six on your card. Are you okay? If there's one extra person at the table and I look over at the table where they're pointing and the same six people <laughs> plus a buddy of mine, are sitting there. I said, we're going to be fine. It's, it's great. So I sat down. This is the amazing part. I get to the table and one of them says, Hey, can we keep going? Yeah. And I went, do, do you have the character sheets and like the hold fast map and everything? Cause I'd let them keep all that stuff. They said, hang on, ran to their hotel room. Cause it was adjacent to the con center back in 10 minutes with all the stuff we made. We asked a hold fast question and made a character for the newcomer. And then we kept playing the story from the day before. Like, you, 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 I mean, you can plan for things like that. Like, there are con sessions where you, where you play three sessions on three days and it's the same people and you continue the story and you just have this one story for the weekend. But, like, to have that happen, like, spontaneously is wild. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it was amazing. And it's one of those things that lets me know that this 
this idea of giving people real agency, mm. not not just for what their characters can do, but letting them have agency in the story and in the setting from a metafictional perspective, that's powerful. And people love it if you give it to them in a way that allows them to do it confidently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It provides the framework. Yeah, there's, there's quite a lot to unpack there, especially when we consider like this stemming from the conversation of you are the dungeon, right? I think Mm -hmm. that there are, like you say, some powerful things. I believe it's, I haven't read it yet, but it keeps getting talked about on the show. Indie Hack does hard and soft details or something. Maybe I'm confusing the game, but there's a game mechanic where it's hard and soft details where if the player fails a roll, then the arbiter gets to add a soft or hard detail depending on the on the roll. And then if the player succeeds on the roll, they're the ones that get to add the soft or hard detail. And I think there's something interesting for both You Are the Dungeon and for, I'm sorry, I- Ironetta, is that correct? Yeah, Ironetta. Iron Edda. It is a matter of allowing, like I've thought about this concept as well, where I'm like, okay, I'm going to introduce an NPC and I'm going to give them a name. Then I want everyone around the table to give me a detail about this person. Backstory, what they look like, whatever you want to add, that's going to be added to this character, right? And I think it creates, it's all about, all of this is an umbrella conversation for player buy-in, right? Mm -hmm. I think games like like the Dungeon Master's Guide for D&D 5th Edition, you know, we're going to compare it to the world's the best role playing game. Only role playing game? I don't know. I don't know how they phrase it anymore. But no, it's a matter of like my, my games are the only role playing games. This was established on the Brain Trust a while back. <laughs> the literal <laughs> only ones. Yes. Um, but it's this concept of like the fifth edition DMG teaches you to sort of read off exposition and present everything to the players. Like you create the platter, right? Mm-hmm. But you never ask the players for what foods they like or what they may be allergic to, what their diets include, right? And so, not to, I guess, food's a good allegory, but it's just this concept of letting everyone sort of have a say. And I think increasing that so far beyond like even the setting. I love the concept you talked about how establishing like pillars of truth for a setting. Like if you're providing a setting for a book, I... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When I think about games like 13th Age, when I think about games like, like D&D, when I think about games like Numenera, I get a little overwhelmed because I get the sense that the book... Even though it doesn't say it, it says run whatever game you like and include whatever details. But that's not like what's presented to me. There are these mm-hmm. huge sweeping maps with tons of locations that you have to pick from. And there's no like it never feels like there's true room. Like you can add a dungeon. You can put a monster there, whatever. But like it's asking you to use all of this at the same mm-hmm. time. Always have it in concept. And like I like this idea of a setting as like simple pillars like i think blades in the dark sort of does this to a certain degree maybe not the exact degree that i'm personally thinking but they present some like you know it's all about electroplasm and this is a ghost world and we're in the industrial revolution and like that's sort of it after that run wild Mm -hmm. but i would be interested in like settings moving forward in design that are just like six to ten things of like there's always a blood moon and the undead rise every Halloween and like these sorts of like that's it after that add whatever you want and you can sort of create a box or framework for players and the GM if it is a GM game or even mm-hmm. like this concept is actually probably more useful in a GM full slash GM less game right like having these frameworks can, of put stuff in it it can be I, <laughs> I I'm biased I really like GMing and so mm-hmm. I I like Same. games that have that role, you know, mm-hmm. so I enjoy GMless stuff or GM full things like Fiasco is one of my seminal mm-hmm. games. Like it's, it's one of those games that changes the way that you think about games if you have never experienced something like it before. But I also, I like the role of, of playing the world effectively. It, it really helps with my focus as a player. I have a very difficult time staying engaged when mm-hmm. I'm only responsible for what my character does mm. so i don't know i mean it i i think that conceptually yes that stuff can work really well in a a shared creative responsibility i strap it onto gm'd experiences because i like to make the kinds of games that i want to play absolutely absolutely and also the the other thing sort of a little bit earlier i also like the concept that you are the dungeon considers the dungeon a character right i think sometimes mm-hmm. locales are treated as locales but when we talk about like fiction writing and personification and all of these things that you use inside of of those prose when you're trying to emulate an experience in the theater of the mind in an abstracted way to a player because you don't have the tangible thing in front of you. You're not in the dungeon. You're not in the tavern. You're not in the wasteland, but you have to be able to say like the sort of emotions that this thing is giving off, not in terms of like how it's making the player feel or the character feel, but it's how it's presenting itself. It says, I, I am a barren wasteland and dare you 
dare you to walk mm-hmm. through me in all my dangers, right? Like it's speaking yeah. to you. So I think the idea for that, I, I never really traced this back before, but as you were breaking that down, it occurred to me sort of where I got it from. Most of my big design work, as I mentioned, is fate, right? Mm-hmm. It's the system that when it was presented to me, it just spoke to me, right? Mm-hmm. It's like for people who make uh, nothing but powered by the apocalypse hacks, because that, that design language really worked for them. Mm-hmm. Fate is this blend of traditional type mechanics with these narrative chunks that, that have mechanical hooks on them. They're aspects, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, if you're not familiar, they're short descriptive phrases that make things true. Mm-hmm. And every character has five aspects, a high concept, a trouble, and then some undefined ones, depending on the type of fate game that you're playing. You then have skills or approaches that have ratings next to them. So an approach tells you how you do something. A skill tells you what you're doing. Games usually use one or the other. And that gives you your modifiers to add to your die roll, so on and so forth. But the idea in Fate, there's, there is an idea in Fate called the Fate Fractal, mm-hmm. where anything in the game can be described in the same way as a character. Mm-hmm. So it is an automatic embodying of a thing. So if you say this place is really important and I need the environment to matter here, mm-hmm. right? then you give the environment some aspects. Its high concept is massively arid desert waste, right? Its trouble is occasional drowning thunderstorms. Mm-hmm. You know, you give it another aspect of a deadly predators abound. You give it another aspect of occasional pockets of solace, meaning oasises and things like that. And you give it a, a fifth aspect of, say, canyons and cliffs. Watch your step. You know, those are all things that are now true about this space. And then you give it skills and you don't have to make them the regular skills that every, everything else had. Maybe you give it arid plus four, you give it uh, thunderstorms plus three. Mm-hmm. And as your party is going through that space, when you need an environmental interaction, you look at those aspects and you go, Oh sweet. I can totally have a thunderstorm roll through here. Cause that's what happens here. Mm-hmm. And then you roll thunderstorms plus three, you get a rating they have to, to go against. So everything is a character and, and you can, Break that down to your sword can be the same thing. The rock on the ground, if it's an important enough rock, you can describe it in the same mechanical ways. And so the idea of making the dungeon the thing that you are playing, right? The the being you are embodying for a session of, of you are the dungeon is, it just really speaks to me in the same sort of way because I think that having reason again the the specific setting things right you are the dungeon you are an evil presence you exist to corrupt and subvert adventurers boom that's what you need to know uh-huh. now bring now bring on the adventurers right there's some procedural stuff of questions to answer and you know uh, tarot cards to draw and some dice to roll but they're really simple things to figure out right it, it's it's all it's all like the one thing when the adventurers come it's all on a page Okay, cool. Where are my adventurers? Oh, here's a table of adventurers. I got the the page of cups. Oh, that douchebag. Great. You know, you know exactly. Yeah, you know exactly who's going to be coming into the dungeon. And then the idea is to spark creativity. So say you pull a character who is a faded herbalist. You know, I, again, used adjective profession. Adjective profession. That's what all of the, the characters are. So if you if your framework for playing fantasy games is D and D 
then you think about what a faded herbalist might be in your D&D setting, and you suddenly can apply more stuff. So I tell you to give them a name, but you could write a whole paragraph about this person, right? Mm-hmm. It's up to you. And there, I've seen people do real basic stuff when they play it, and I've seen people basically write novels of content about what this is in the space, and it's that I'm like, hell yes, that's exactly right. Use this however it works for you. The basics of it are easily digestible, goes down real smooth to read it. And you then have something that you can make a, a, a horrible dungeon with. Now, if you don't want to make a horrible dungeon, you know, then probably don't play this game. But <laughs> if if you, and part of the reason I think it was so successful is it hooks into the trat gamer mm-hmm. who only knows D&D or Pathfinder and gives them a thought exercise yeah. to do where they, I'm, I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking to turn them into, you know, a, a, a grimy indie nerd, but if they suddenly start thinking about things a little bit differently mm-hmm. and they go, okay, well how could I apply this to the thing that I do? And they get a little bit more interactivity. Things are a little less static. They're a little less beholden to the canon of the setting. When you were talking about how big campaign settings feel like binding to you, Mm -hmm. 100%. It took me so long to feel like I could mess with what was true in the Forgotten Realms that I just didn't want to play in it, you know? Mm -hmm. Or find out what was true in the first place, right? Because it doesn't present its truths up front, right? Exactly, exactly. And, And, you know... If you change one thing, what are the ripple effects going to be? Like, how is this going to affect what Kelvin Blackstaff is going to be doing? Yeah. I don't want to think about that. I don't the water care. The elite will be in an uproar. Exactly. You know, and and if that's the kind of game you like to play, sure, that's great. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna shit on you for that. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't work so well for me. Right. Like when my group and I did Waterdeep Dragon Heist. One, I had to change so much stuff about how that adventure was structured because there's a lot of really good stuff in there, but boy, the structure of the adventure was wonky as anything. Mm -hmm. But because it's my group, there's a point, spoilers for Waterdeep Dragon Heist, a now two-year-old adventure from Wizards of the Coast. There's a point in time where you get a tavern. You are given, as Mm -hmm. as a plot point, you're given a tavern. It's like a base of operations. My group went all in on that, and half the game was them running the tavern. Yeah, it became Not, the home and garden network. You know what fa- I mean? Like and it, it was fantastic, <laughs> but like I had to make sure that I was comfortable enough using the places around the city mm-hmm. as stepping off points and names a lot like I described for long haul. Like it's just a name. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's some details about it that the book gives me, or maybe I can find them from another another source. But I was not that worried about canonically what those things were. This was our game. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think there's something to be said about actually a a family member of mine is getting ready to run Dragon Heist. And some of the things that he's already in a sense of like trying to make more gonzo adventure. And I was like, okay, one thing you might want to consider is just remove the gold conversation. Like, (laughs) I don't think it matters really to any form of the plot. And so I was like, you could do like a, a gang turf war, right? The castle anters don't love that Jarlaxle is there and Jarlaxle wants to remove Xanathar and Xanathar needs to get rid of Manchun. Or that, you, yeah. Or you could even do like uh, a water deep urban legends game. If you want to go full gonzo, like take dungeon of the mad mage and just 
put it in Waterdeep. Just take all of those dungeons and just put them on the surface level. You don't have to go into Undermountain to do all that. <laughs> just just go in and call it like, yeah, I hear uh, down in Blue Alley there's this really weird crystal that like pops up, and then bada bing, bada boom, you got a dungeon, right? Yeah, exactly. No, it's there. There's a there's actually a resource. There's a website. I can't even remember which one it was now that reworked the entire adventure. So all the factions were involved, no matter mm-hmm. what season you started in. And that yeah. was of immense help yeah. because it made things feel interconnected and real. Yes. If, yeah. if there's just one faction after this, after the, the gold, it, it all falls a little bit flat. There's not enough that and, and how you go from one point and another in those individual season arcs don't make any sense and then there's no connection to the headquarters what the fuck is xanathar doing the entire time jalaxel's in the city what do you mean exactly so in in our game which i'm not sure we we did an actual play podcast of it and Mm -hmm. for time reason i had to stop editing it and we haven't played that particular game in a couple of years now Mm. but i'm not sure if this bit got to the audio or not but there is a you know, the, the book gives you all of these layer descriptions, right? Mm-hmm. For all, for all four of the factions. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of really good information in each of them. And so they got to the point where they were going to infiltrate the Xanathar's layer and try and get, cause the, the way the restructuring worked is that all, all of the different factions have uh, a piece of the eye that goes in the stone of galore that mm-hmm. like helps you find out where the gold is. Mm-hmm. So you have to go and get the eye great. You have a reason to go to the headquarters now. It's a, it's a great little setup. That's great. Yeah. In the actual printed material, there's a room in Xanathar's lair that has, there's like a, an alchemist who's trying to like plot against the Xanathar and there's like barrels of fire oil, like mm-hmm. massively explode. It's like 20 barrels or something. Mm-hmm. And my group literally moved those barrels out to the main chamber, lit the whole thing on fire and blew up the Xanathar. Like <laughs> I believe I, it. They, they, they barely survived themselves, but they nuked the Xanathar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like, that's basically where we left off was, okay, now there's a massive power vacuum in Undermountain. They've got a deal with Jarlaxle to find the gold. They have a deal with one of the leaders of the city, like the, the, the unmasked fucking Marvin. That's not his name, but sure. No, her, yeah. her name's definitely Marvin. She's Marvin from now on. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they had deals with both of them to find the gold and like found a loophole where those deals weren't mutually exclusive. Like, so things were getting really, I was feeling the weight of the narrative, but it's a narrative mm-hmm. we built together. It wasn't mm-hmm. like anything that the setting was telling us we had to account for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Castellaners got sacrificed to their demon Lord because half their gold was gone. Like they, they, they did, they they were doing all the right stuff. I don't even remember why we got onto this tangent about dragon heist. (laughs) It's suffice it to say, you need to be like, there's a lot of good information in published campaign settings and there's a lot that you can pull from. But if I ever write a big setting, I'm going to set it up in such a way that there are, just things that are true and questions to engage with mm-hmm. to bypass that entire process of being beholden to canonicity. Yeah. There's a, there, the there's, a there's a new word for you. Canonicity. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Lower the file size. It, cause otherwise it's like scrolling through a PDF that's not optimized. Oh. Right. 
you 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 start you're like oh that's beautiful great the cover looks great and you start scrolling down and it goes yeah. and then half the table of contents loads and you're like okay you scroll again and then the other half of the table of contents loads yeah and you're yeah. like wow this is really frustrating to read what if i just jump to page 37 and see what's on it 37 enter okay there's page 37 wow that's really cool i wonder what that means click on a link but <laughs> right it yeah. freezes again just because there's there's literal information overload, so mm-hmm. I want to get rid of that bottleneck. Yeah, exactly. I think it's I think that's a really cool concept. Reduce the file, like speaking specifically to settings and tying in. You are the dungeon. Mm-hmm. Creating these truths reduces the file size of like you know, like I mentioned earlier. New, like it would be so much easier to feel what I could play with if they said okay. Here are, you know, this may not be perfect for every game. I think that's important. There's a grain of salt with artistic Mm -hmm. integrity and everything like that. But, you know, give me six things that cannot change about the setting, period. Make them super obvious to me. In fact, let them each be their own paragraph and just tell me outright, like, Heart the City Beneath sort of does this well. They say, like, Mm -hmm. the heart can be anything, but it is a thing deep within the bottom of this place. Everyone here is a little crazy. And that's really about it. After that, hog wild. Let it let your elder tour rip, dude. Yeah, exactly. And there, there's a, a term in uh, education called scaffolding, right? Mm, yeah, where yeah. Mm-hmm. where you want to work with the student you're trying to teach, hands on enough to get them to the point where they can work comfortably until they reach another point where they need help again. And mm-hmm. then you build them up and you prepare them for the next phase and you just keep doing that. And I feel like setups like that, where you get enough basic information to, to go on, right? This is why I, I, I think that, that GMs can serve a very valuable role because they tend to invest more time in the nuts and bolts of mm-hmm. both system and setting tend to not always, but tend to that a player goes, okay, cool. So I'm going to start answering this question. Wait, is this thing true in this world? And the GM consults their internal Rolodex of either personal desire or knowledge they have yeah. and goes, yeah, it's totally true. Roll on. And then the player feels confident again. Or the, or the GM goes, well, it's sort of true in this world. Here's how it is. And the player goes, okay, cool. Mm-hmm. There's a conversation there and, and give and take and you are bouncing ideas back and forth and building something together. Now this can happen in GM full games as well, but there needs to be a lot more parity in terms of knowledge and execution on everyone's part, which can be a little more cognitive load than some people want. Yeah. Some people, you know, the Orville Redenbacher buttered popcorn version of, of playing a game where they just get to sit down and take handfuls of, of delicious things, mm-hmm. you know, not do their own mise en place, and then, you know, prep a meal. Welcome to the trend section to break up the design section of the sectional podcast. Known it's ex it's ex sectional. X ex sectional. <laughs> I, I hope I don't get banned for that. We're both canceled now. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, super good. Make it a word, everyone. Hashtag Juice Nation. Anyways, 
let's uh, let's talk about trends. We spoke a little bit off mic about this, and I think it's something that has been a hot topic on the show for many episodes now, and by many, mm-hmm. like five, but five of 25? More? Yeah, tw- 20%. Yeah, that's 20%. We, we're talking about alternative crowdfunding sources, and you were really excited to talk about sort of this Patreon model that mm-hmm. you established. Now, just for me, just so that... I can set a context for what I know about Patreon. I know recently that they changed the price, the subscription model from first of the month to anniversary models. It and hasn't that, quite changed yet. Oh, heard. They, they announced it was coming. I am mm-hmm. hoping they walk that back because heard. that is massively detrimental and will see me moving this model over to something like Ko-Fi or coffee or whatever the, however the hell you say the name of yeah. that service. There's also another community owned crowdfunding monthly subscription platform that is being worked on by mm-hmm. a co-op where, where everyone who is on the service is a part owner of mm-hmm. the service. Oh. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but I signed up to be let know when that comes available because yeah, if you remember, hit me with a link or something. Yeah. Like that I'll, I'll take a look notes. at my email when we, when we finish this up. But so yeah, like any platform of any kind, itch, Kickstarter, drive through RPG, Patreon, you're beholden to someone else's desire to make money. Like mm-hmm. that's part of what that's part of the problem, right? Is that these these services that we find to use as models are great until the exact moment that they're not. Mm-hmm. And because they can change whatever they want to whenever they want. And mm-hmm. yeah, that may tank the service, but your options are then, well, the service is tanked and I can't use it anymore or it sucks to use and I don't want to use it anymore and you're left without this this thing. Mm-hmm. So any any model of getting revenue should keep that in mind and I think that every creator needs to have the ability to pivot very quickly and mm-hmm. adapt to the changing landscape and have a place that you own that is your place. Like I have a website. It's mm-hmm. not the best, but it is a place I can always direct people to, mm-hmm. you know, cause one day Twitter may not be around discord yeah. may not be around like these, these avenues that we use aren't forever. Mm-hmm. So with all that in mind, I have had a Patreon in one form or another since about 2014. And I've never found a way that really works for me. And how I like to release things and how I want to get support until now. There's a there's a podcast uh, called The Bill Buds. It is a popcast where they review pop music. It's two people who have, are RPG adjacent. And I started listening to it and their Patreon is pay what you can. All the reward tiers are the same. You just pay what money you can afford to pay. Mm-hmm. And so you get access to their Discord and all of their bonus episodes and then all the Discord-specific stuff that happens. I was like, that's a really good idea because mm-hmm. for a while, my Patreon framework was, for a dollar, you get my thanks. Huzzah. Right. For $3, you get all the small games I release. Mm-hmm. For $3 as a separate tier, you get the bonus episodes of 15 Minutes of Fave. For $6, you get them both. For $10 or more, you're amazing. I'll figure out what to give you eventually. Yeah. Because trying to carve out time to do something extra in my workflow to give as a backer reward has always been super challenging for me. Mm -hmm. So what I've decided to do, actually what I did, is revise everything to be pay what you can. Mm -hmm. So now I have tiers at 1, 3, 6, 
10, 20, and 50, and they're mm-hmm. all the same. Mm-hmm. Everybody gets all the small games that I've released. I went back and redid all the posts. So they're all just patrons only. Mm-hmm. So every single, literally every single small game I have on itch is on my Patreon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You can pay a dollar a month and have access to all of them. These are titles that I charge anywhere from three to $10 for mm-hmm. per PDF on itch mm-hmm. because, and this feeds into what else I'm doing with, with the goals there's there are two sort of different revenue streams here, right? You release a new game like you are the dungeon that I made brand new, hyped it up, put it out on itch, good sales. Really happy about that. Mm-hmm. There's diminishing returns into hyping up something that's been out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It takes new avenues of knowledge, like being on a podcast or being interviewed or whatever, to get new people to learn about it. So you want long tail sales. You want trickles of sales over time. That's what long tail means. But you could also just get people that give you a little bit every month as a semi stable amount, right? So my hope is to build the semi stable amount for those of you who are on camera with me, I'm doing a little graph with my hands and then have occasional spikes of sales of individual titles that get released. Mm-hmm. And you'll always know that if you put whatever money a month you can to my Patreon, you're going to get the the games that are going to be those spikes. Mm-hmm. As a goal for my Patreon, I set a number of patrons goal. When I hit 75 patrons, I'm going to take Iron Edda, War of Metal and Bone, the biggest game I've done on my own to date, and I'm going to revise it, update it, and re-release it as a pay-what-you-can title. Interesting. Not because I want to race to the bottom. That's a different thing. This is a different type of pay what you can, right? Yeah, yeah, Because so, so on itch, it's going to be pay what you want with a suggested price of 20 or $25. It's 20 now. I think it'll be 25 after I do the revisions. And yes, mm-hmm. it's just for a PDF. Because what I'm doing, like I released Ironhead five years ago now, something like that. Mm-hmm. Trying to get people hyped up for it now is wasted time. There's sure. no, there's no point in me trying to do that. Mm-hmm. If I talk about it occasionally, I get the occasional sale from it. Fantastic. That's wonderful. If though I effectively, if I put my energy into driving people toward the Patreon, I'm trading those occasional little sales of Ironetta along the way for steady income from Patreon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As a goal, then if I release it as pay what you want, that generates its own kind of buzz and it lowers the barrier of entry for people to get into my games. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. If you want to know what it's about, if you want to see what a revised version looks like or how to revise a game, it's been out for a while. You'll have a model you can look at and you can essentially do it for free if you want to. Yeah. And that has the potential again, talking about the marketing funnel that has the potential to take someone who casually knew about my stuff and convert them into a fan who wants to talk about my stuff. Mm-hmm. So someone picks up War of Metal and Bone for free once it's revised, and they go, this is really cool. And there's a thing in there that says, by the way, support my Patreon and get all my games. And they go, dope. And they start tossing me five bucks a month. Yeah. Wonderful. In four months, they've paid for the PDF that they got for free. Mm-hmm. And then some, right? As if 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 that keeps going, yeah. And so that's that's my new model. That's my hope. 
than for other big releases that I do, like when Long Haul is ready to go. I'm going to run a Kickstarter for it because I want more art in it than I can get from Pixabay and, you know, <laughs> manipulate myself. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm getting pretty good at doing that, but like I'm not a professional artist. You know, having an external editor on it would be a great idea because it's a long game. Mm-hmm. So all those things that I just can't pay for myself. And so run a Kickstarter for it, get the big pop, get the big money from that release, right? Have it on itch, get residual sales, and then a year or two after its initial release, go, okay, guess what? When we get to 300 patrons, long haul becomes pay what you can. Yeah, yeah. And and just con- eventually, long-term, convert all of my titles to pay what you can. That'll get a polish, a rewrite, a revision, be shinier versions of themselves, and convert all of those trickle sales into steady monthly income. Yeah, yeah, that's the hope. And so far, let's see, I made the change to the Patreon a week or so ago as of the recording of this. And I've got seven new patrons. Amazing. And I struggled to get one patron a year prior mm. to that because because my model was unclear. Right. I didn't know how. To, well, you can do this or you can do this or you can do this tier and get this. Now I just say, look, I'm pretty dope. You know, to, 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 to quote Kanye, I'm dope and I do dope shit. So like support me however much you can get all the cool stuff that I make. And as I make more cool stuff, you're going to get it, Mm -hmm. you know, and that it, there's a discord. It's not terribly active at all, but it may become over time. Right. And I start building those supporters into a community Right. And again, the funnel, people who want to talk about the thing, people who want to talk about the thing. And in theory, this can just keep going. It's actually, it's not unchecked capitalistic growth. It's a sustainable model where I control the pace of all the releases Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and where maybe a month or two, like there's a baby coming. There's going to be some time when I'm not releasing anything Mm -hmm. and that's okay. You know, maybe things dwindle a little bit, but I'm guaranteed X amount of money every month from, from that, you know, it's, it's a way that I can convert all of my, I I can narrow my focus in ways that are effective, right? I'm not, I'm not doing a shotgun. I'm saying all of what I do is over here. Mm -hmm. Here is how you can help me do more of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And also here is what you get. If you help me convince more people to support Everybody yeah. benefits. I think I literally wrote down might literally steal idea. Hundred percent, go on for it, please. Card. Yeah, I I hope that any creator who struggles with trying to figure out what to do to get people interested cribs this model and does it mm-hmm. because one of the things that is frustrating is the wrong word, but everyone's brains are different, right? Everyone handles pressures of things differently. I love running Kickstarters. I love the attention. I love the, the, (laughs) the joy of seeing the numbers, you know, go up, right? It's that very, uh, lizard brain numbers are going higher. (laughs) This is great, you know, and I understand, like, I, I think it was Tyler on the most recent episode that he was on talking about the anxiety. Oh no, it was Adam of, of having the app on your phone and having Mm -hmm. it ding every time, 
Because you used to get those in email form back in the day. Like you would get an email every time someone did anything with a pledge and your inbox would be flooded. And you would have, you could potentially have those feelings of, oh no, what did I do? They, they don't like me anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I'm 10, 10 Kickstarters deep now. I have developed the internal mechanisms to cope with that. And I mm-hmm. completely understand why newer designers might come to the Kickstarter model and go, I should give this a try. And then feel those feelings and go never again. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or have a really bad backer interaction with these super backers, which is a, topic for any number of other shows yeah. <laughs> and, and go this entitled prick does not deserve to treat me this way. Mm-hmm. Right. And all those things are true. I am uniquely positioned to be able to handle that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. I have learned how to do that, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I'll leave that to someone else to decide. But it means that I don't have a lot of the inherent problems with Kickstarter that someone else does. I see what the problems are, but I either know how to navigate them or they don't bug me. Mm -hmm. So, but the idea of what stretch goals do I need to have? Yes. Kickstarter is definitely incentivizing you to stretch yourself way too thin. Mm -hmm. You don't have to, you you just don't, you can set up a project that is, I need $5,000 to make this pro to make this thing happen. And every other red cent is going to me. Yeah, full um, stop. Yep. The 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 paper arcade, a Kickstarter, is an is an equity based project. Every single person on the project is getting paid the exact same amount. Mm-hmm. That means when I quoted the artist to do the cover and the the sort of title pages for the four games, mm-hmm. when that number was fifteen hundred dollars, I went, Okay, everyone's getting fifteen hundred bucks. That makes the goal eleven five. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Like it's high. Who knows if we'll hit it? I really hope we do. But I believe in that model and there are no stretch goals. Every dollar past the goal gets split six ways. Yeah. And we all just get more money. Thank you for giving us more money. We really appreciate it. You know, so with the Patreon model that I described, it is a way for me to take the work I was going to do anyway and to get support from people who just dig the work that I do to incentivize me putting out new content on a regular basis because I not only get to maybe draw people into the Patreon with the idea of, well, hey, for a much smaller amount of money, you can get this thing that I'm making. Like I just released a a module for Fate that's a magic system that I came up with a few years back. I polished it up, laid it out, ready to go. I've gotten seven new patrons for uh, an extra, what, 15 bucks a month or something, depending on how that all broke down. Pretty good, not bad. 15 bucks yeah. a month is solid. But I've also sold six copies of it on Itch and 16 on DriveThruRPG for seven bucks a pop. Mm-hmm. Like, it feels a little bit like having my cake and eating it too, but it gives me a way to target multiple channels of interest. Yes. Right? Yeah. Fate is, Fate's not a trad game but evil hat's an established company at this point in time and it's a much more known quantity now 10 years or eight years after the fate core kickstarter Mm -hmm. so like drive through rpg makes a lot of sense why it's selling better there than it is on itch you know Mm -hmm. people on itch aren't looking for fate stuff people on drive through are so I just all I did was toss the link up, right? And and if, if people are are searching for fate things on Drive Through RPG, they're going to find my stuff because of how that tagging system works. 
you know, people on itch are seeing it because, oh, it's a new thing on itch. They don't necessarily care that it's for fate. Maybe they do, you know, but by putting my stuff in both places, I can let those internal mechanisms of both places just function and do their thing. And I get what sales out of them that I get. So sales from drive through sales from itch long-term stuff from Patreon, like that feels pretty good. And all I did was release something I was going to do anyway and market it the way that I always would. I just include three different links in my tweet threads. Yeah. You know, Um, it's much lower pressure. It's what's the reason why I'm so attracted to it is because I watch a lot of these entrepreneurial YouTube shows, one specifically called The Future with Christo and a bunch of other collaborative members of that team. But in that circle, there is a big conversation. He always harps on value pricing. Mm -hmm. So it's about, especially when you're a creative, what is your product worth to another person and also to yourself, right? And what he means by that is that, you know, you are the dungeon is going to be worth something different to me. It's going to be worth something different to it's, it's also like the way people might tip at a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who's really stretching the buck and is, but wanted to go out and do something nice for themselves may not tip anything. And that's no slight against them because that's the value of that meal to them. They wanted it so much that they're willing to spend sort of their last few cents or dollars extra that they have budgeted and do that on the other end of the spectrum. There is a person who probably makes a ton of money that will still not tip a large amount because they feel entitled or they feel like this this product is below them. And then, you know, there's someone like me who's worked in the industry who just does 30% flat no matter what the bill is. Like, that's just my go-to. And so what's interesting about your model is this, like, modularity and this diversification both for yourself but also for the consumer, right? Mm-hmm. If someone is paying attention to your Patreon... I think I think what you said about having something where it creates the fans that allow that it creates the fans that want to talk about you. It's like, hey, you know, I know uh, their games are over on itch or they're over on drive through, but they're offering their games at like you get them all for a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars, whatever the value is to the person they're bringing in. Right. Mm-hmm. And so. What's really cool about that concept is that you create this this flex mode, right? There's someone who may look at a game on your itch and it's $25, so that's a little too steep for me. But then you say, hey, come check out my Patreon where you can get it all for a buck, right? Mm-hmm. And if you're of the altruistic mindset, when I get enough patrons, which is also for you a way to say like, when I'm making this much money a month... Mm-hmm. I can produce this thing, right? If I'm making $75 a month, I'm willing to put in some extra effort for this thing that you've all been asking for. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, it lets me hit all my different customers, if you will, Mm -hmm. in different ways, Mm -hmm. because you are the dungeons. Another great example, right? Like I I said that the fate supplement sold twice as many on drive through RPG as it has so far on itch. I've had what? 86 paid downloads of you are the dungeon on itch. I've had 10 on drive through and someone left a comment that said, what, what is this? What kind of game is this? Why are there no page previews enabled? If you want my hard earned PDF, if if you want my hard earned $10, cause you can leave comments without buying stuff on, on drive through. If you want my hard earned $10, you're going to have to give me more than that. And I'm sitting over here going, okay, bro, it's not the game for you. That's fine. Like, yeah, 
cool, great. I've got, you know, 86 people over here on this other platform that think it's dope as hell. So, you know, you can jog on. But it, it lets me, because I make a bunch of different kinds of things, it lets me target those things without having to target them, right? I just put them on both venues and let them run free. Yeah. And, you know, with itch specifically, there's the tipping system built in. Like, I've had people pay two or three times the asking cost of a PDF because, like you said, that's what it's worth to them. Right. And that's that's beautiful. And that's where the, like, when it turns into a pay-what-you-can title for War of Metal and Bone, people will see the suggested price. They'll see, because it, I'll give a history of it, like, this was originally released and blah, blah, blah. Here's what the game is. Here are the changes that I made to it when my Patreon link... Right. Got to a certain, right. You just, you, you tie everything into the synergistic way and it lets people interact with them financially in ways that are most beneficial to them. Yep. All of which benefits me. Yep. And it, I feel so much less stressed about all of this because mm-hmm. I just get to do what I want to do and funnel it all through the places that I funnel it and let the the joy that I have of creating infect what I do rather than being like, Oh, I have to, I have to do this in a certain way or it's not going to hit the, no bump that I can do what I want as long as I'm adhering to my standards of quality, which are, which are pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're going to get a certain level of thing when I make it. Mm -hmm. And that level is only going to go up as time goes on, as I learn how to do more things and I Mm -hmm. get better at this because I hope to continue to keep getting better at this it it works really, really well for me. It makes me happy to think about because already a weekend, I'm seeing the knock-on effects from it. Like, it, it's functioning already. The engine yeah. has already started to, to turn. And it's wonderful to see that. And, you know, you know, what's also... What I also want to point out here is that in no way have you devalued your games, right? Like, mm-hmm. on Itch... Still 20 bucks, 8 bucks, 25 bucks, 10 bucks, whatever the value of the game is for you, right? Whatever work mm-hmm. you feel is the value of putting into it. And what you just create is another option that would have been a pay what you want anyways, but it's also it's also controlled pay what you want, right? Like mm-hmm. you're not saying give me $2 or $3, you're saying like 1, 3, 5, 10, 25, 50, right? Like those are your yeah. options. It's not anything in between, which is still sort of a controlled environment for you, which is important. And... I don't know. It's just like, there's just something about this that doesn't, like you said, doesn't really feel like a race to the bottom because if you have a person who only knows you through drive through and also quick tangent, I think it's smart to recognize that when you engage a certain system in terms of design, like hack it, like hacking fate, hacking D and D hacking Numenera, hacking all, all those sorts of things and putting them in sort of their appropriate places, recognizing that like, this game is a game that's lived on drive-through RPG for the last 20 years. So you're probably going to see a good amount of sales from there and they're not trying to go to itch to find that product. Right. So I think that's Mm -hmm. really important, but what's really nice about this entire system is that it doesn't devalue your content. It doesn't devalue your brand, right? Because Mm -hmm. you don't want people to come to you as the, if we're all talking honestly about our own businesses and careers, 
we never want to be the cheap option, right? Because the cheap option doesn't really sustain you, unfortunately. So you're presenting a lot of ways that both maintain a certain level of lifestyle for you, you know, your family, right? Mm -hmm. Uh (laughs) Um, The place, the area in which you live for whatever reasons you live there. Mm -hmm. uh, And that's all important to take in consideration when you're making these, these pieces of content. And this model is interesting to me because, I'm also very like diversifying mind kind of person. Like I don't need to live in one buy space. Like I don't feel like I need all my games to live on a web page and itch. Like that's not going to be the end. I feel like I can supplement a lot of these tools to find different avenues for people who feel comfortable donating on Patreon or who feel comfortable Mm -hmm. donating on Kofi or who feel comfortable donating on third party websites that are up and coming, right? The role marketplace, multiverses marketplace, all those things, all those other virtual tabletops, roll twenties marketplace, right? Mm -hmm. Like figuring out how to put that. Those are all places with different audiences that are not always cross pollinating. You are, you are the cross pollinating factor, right? Tracy is Jeremy. is. And, and that can be an intimidating place to be, right? Like one of your past two guests talked about how Kickstarter focuses on the creator being the reason that a, that a game funds, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Kickstarter driving things toward that. Yeah, it's, it's a weird thing to think about. But given, again, that we're all functioning under capitalism, mm-hmm. right? This is a way that I have found that allows me to function as a brand right to have a model that i can say here's here's my stuff here's how my stuff works mm-hmm. that doesn't make me feel gross yeah right i have no problem asking for money i i have not for most of my life right there have been times in years past where we've had some real financial hardships and i've had to literally say hey this is my paypal link please if you can and i've had people support support that. And that's been humbling to see, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to be like that all the time. That's not, that's not a comfortable place to exist. Yeah. This is because I am relatively certain I'm not going to stop making stuff. I really like doing this, this Mm -hmm. kind of thing. I have a stable floor of freelance work. That's going to provide me reliable monthly income, right? I do other freelance projects, helping, consult on Kickstarters or edit games or do layout or all of the above for, for people. Right. So those are, are, are big pops of money that help a lot too, but those aren't guaranteed. Right. You know, that freelance work, you know, there's, there's gaps between you're not always working on a project necessarily, but I want to keep making stuff. So this is, I'm, I'm hoping this becomes the sustainable engine for me to do this, you know, and it, it ties into getting followers on, on Twitter, for example, right. Mm-hmm. That's my platform of choice. And I'm, again, I'm lucky. I've been on Twitter for 12 years now mm-hmm. and actively looking to be present for like the last nine. And so like I'm at 3,600 plus followers, right? Mm-hmm. It's a sizable following. There was a statistic some five years back that, that, was like, if you have more than 500 Twitter followers, you're in the top 1%, right? Like, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, you think, and you think about like, oh, well, 500 isn't that much. Well, I mean, comparatively speaking, to, mm-hmm. it, it is, you know, so I, I've gotten what, like, see, I, I love having, 
I'm a semi numbers person, right? Like I, I know you've numbers. So like in the past 28 days on my Twitter analytics page, I have gained 20 new followers. Amazing. Right. And it's just because I'm, and some of this is contextual, right? There's a lot of stuff that's going really well in my life right now. I am mm-hmm. absolutely the outlier because we're in the middle of a pandemic. Things are so difficult for so many people. Things are going great in my life right now. Mm-hmm. And that's being reflected in how I interact online, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to to put on a persona to like be positive and encouraging and engage in good faith. Like I'm just doing that because I can right now. And it's great. Yeah. There's going to be a time that comes where I'm not going to be able to, and then it's going to be harder work, but I'm mm-hmm. seeing it pay off because I've laid a lot of groundwork, you know, for it to pay off. You know, I'm, I'm using connections that I've worked really hard to, to build and skills that I've worked really hard to gain. You know, it's, it's, I, I'm relatively certain that I've been doing this longer than anyone you've had on before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a really different perspective. I don't want anyone to think that I take these current successes for granted, right? There's a, an old adage that to become an overnight success, you have to have spent 10 years like getting there. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot that is paying off from years of having put in the time and the work and making huge mistakes i've i have fucked up so many times doing this interpersonally financially like i have just absolutely biffed it a number of times but i haven't given up right i've i've wanted to find ways to make this a functional sustainable thing and i've wanted to find ways to improve myself as a person and those things are all aligned, right? I'm working on making sure that they stay aligned because I'm on the verge of getting the life that I've always wanted. Like I get to work from home in RPGs and podcasting. We're on the verge of buying the house that we're renting and I get to be a parent. I get to be a non-binary dad in like two months, two and a half months. Like it's a fairy tale. It, I, I don't, it, it's amazing. And I, I want to always acknowledge how long it was before it got to happen and how lucky I, I lucky is not the right word, but it kind of is how lucky I am to be in this position because you don't necessarily get to do this in the world we live in. Like I've got privilege working for me 100%, but like I've also put in a lot of work and a lot of time and, you know, have beaten the shit out of myself emotionally a number of times regularly, you know? So if there is a trend, since that's what this segment technically is, that I want to speak into the world, it is to... I want everyone who does this kind of thing to hopefully find a way that being their authentic, genuine selves out in the world yields the kinds of results that I'm lucky enough to be seeing right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a process to figure out who you are. I didn't make my first game until I was 32, Mm -hmm. right? I started way late by comparison. Like 
Possum Creek Games, Jay Dragon is 23 goddamn years old. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to see what Jay and Grub are doing. The, mm-hmm. the games are just gorgeous. And I am happy that I can say that because four years ago, I would have had almost, uh, getting around the professional, professional jealousy would have been almost impossible. Mm. You know, that's a process. It takes time to grow into the kind of person you want to be. And if you are self-aware and you are doing that work younger, fucking bless you because you are going to be so much better off than you would have otherwise. I, I dicked away 12 years (laughs) plus Mm -hmm. being just a garbage person in a lot of ways. And I am now so much closer to the kind of person that I want to be. And I found this, this method, this, this formula that seems like it's going to work. And I hope that if you listen to a lot of the discourse about itch funding or Kickstarter or Patreon or Kofi or whatever it is, whatever, whatever model, right? I hope you find one that works for you that doesn't break your spirit because Mm -hmm. that's that kind of thing taking that kind of impetus forward in your life, right? When these platforms go away, there's go- that's going to breed a resiliency in you that allows you to work to better things, right? Like how itch funding is a, a, and degreening are ways that people are trying to get out from underneath Kickstarter. Fantastic. I don't know if it's going to work for me, but I love that other people are doing it. Because they are ahead of the curve. They're ahead of the crash of Kickstarter. Because it's going to go away eventually, you know? Mm -hmm. But you're going to find ways to continually adapt and improve. And I hope, for all of our sakes, that part of that improvement is the tearing down of capitalism. Because (laughs) we all need to not exist under this oppressive mode of reality. It's a big, big thing. But, boy, is that a trend I would like to see happen. Thank you, Tracy. I'm going to let that, I'm going to let that, rest on the segment there for sure that will move us in off off mic beautiful great lovely stuff and just to commiserate with like successful things like today i just hit 300 twitter followers when you hit me with the 500 i was like holy shit i'm only like 200 away lit yeah hell yes and my currency currently is like i love that people are talking about the show and finding uh, health and guidance like you know not to speak you into the model but your star is rising Right. Mm-hmm, you're doing mm-hmm. you're doing a lot of things right. You're engaging oh. in good faith with the things that you want to do. You're putting out a product that is fun to listen to and engaging. Like you're you're heading down what from from here seems like the right path. I don't know your context, right? So I can't mm-hmm. say a hundred percent that that it's that with certainty. Mm-hmm. But if this is something that's sustainable for you, if this is output you can maintain without without hurting yourself. You're fucking in like Flynn, my friend. Like you're 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 doing you're doing the right work right now. It seems like again, I say that with only a, a tiny pie slice of a vision of what's happening. But yeah. yeah, it's it seems like you're it seems like you're 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 doing the right stuff. Just you know, be ready when when the knocks come. Just like yeah. when, just like when you left the restaurant and suddenly couldn't find a job because your resume didn't say the right shit. Yeah, like. That kind of stuff is just going to keep happening. I only say that because I tend to be a very disconnected from reality kind of person. I dream huge. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes those dreams get get turned into reality. But I have learned 
that I have to temper my expectations because if I don't, I'm going to end up on my ass Mm -hmm. and I want to end up on my ass less and less as time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. Like I'm going to have a kid that's going to be enough curveballs in my life. (laughs) Uh, Can I, can I please make my professional stuff not be as bumpy? (laughs) It's literally the next arc in your campaign for sure. There's no hundred percent. Yeah. 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 It's been, it's been a journey and you know, like I said, currently I hope I've been straightforward enough with my guests that I'm, you know, that they know that monetization is coming soon, but I don't think I want to do that through ads really by any stretch of the imagination. I know I have a thing with like Tyler coming up, but I, I like what you're presenting here and I really want to create something that doesn't follow the common podcast tract of like i'm sponsored by purple mattress on this episode mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. like i just i don't want that it doesn't it doesn't jive with me yeah do you have any kind of bonus content that is like something you are already planning on making or you think you can make easily not yet but i sure. want to i used to have an old uh youtube channel called roll to forge where i did some actual play stuff and i sort of want to revisit doing actual play work and uh, jeff stormer on, in the brain trust has often talked about these sort of like sponsored actual plays where like someone will approach you and say, Hey, I've got a Kickstarter coming up. Would you be willing to do like a four parter, like mm-hmm. actual play to display the game? And I'd be like, and I'm like, I could totally like execute that. I could find players, get them paid. And I would love to execute that idea. And I think that would be like a bonus content archive thing. Cause it only live as long as the Kickstarter lives. Right. But sure. someone may want to watch that. I could put that up on like Patreon or a hidden YouTube mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. No, good idea. Can I, again, off mic, can I tell you about the model for how I'm playtesting Iron Edder Reforged, which is the cyberpunk version of sure, Iron Edder? Yeah. yeah. So I've, I've written the alpha game of it, and I am working with Alex Flanagan, Bianca Zelda, and Jeff Stormer mm-hmm. to do an, an eight-episode actual play run of it where we all play the game together and they give me feedback and then I'm going to revise the game into its beta form, mm. and then we're going to do it again. And then the next revision will be for the final for the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I put episode one of the podcast out, I also drop the beta on itch or the mm-hmm. alpha on itch and do it Minecraft model style where the alpha is 10 bucks. And then when the beta comes out, if you bought the alpha, you get the beta for free. Right. And then, you know, it goes up to, to whatever price after mm-hmm. that. And then Patreon gets the alpha and the beta. In fact, Patreon already has the alpha. And then when I do the Kickstarter, I get to do it up big style and have this actual play series so people can see the journey of how it went. Mm-hmm. Plus hyping it up where people are seeing the alpha and the beta and get excited for it. Like I'm really, I'm really hype about this, this model. Yeah, I think it's smart too because I think one of the things that are lacking for like, what do I want to say, like, developer actual plays like i think about john harper's blades in the dark campaign and we sort of like saw snippets here and there of changes to the game over the course of that but i like for me i'm a very like structured organizational type person Mm -hmm. and so i think for people who think like me potentially i know they're out there where seeing like a big revision change drop with an actual play and a game at the same time. I think that's more powerful than saying like, here's a little like hot, like when I think about comparing it to an MMO, right? I want to see the patch update. 
I yeah. don't care about hot fixes. I don't give a right. shit about hot fixes. And that's all a lot of like these actual play developer shows are kind of geared towards is more like the hot fix style of doing mm-hmm. things. And no, I, I, think want, I want people to see be, how the sausage is made. Yeah, exactly. And see what exactly you know, like run a campaign again. Plus, I'm also over like the long campaign. Like I don't want a 47 episode arc. I want to get this shit done in 10 episodes and call it a day. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I also, as part of the Kickstarter, I'm going to budget for paying those performers for their time and yeah. I can't afford, you know, it's going to be what 16, two and a half hour episodes. And even if I do a, a modest, like $25 an hour, mm-hmm. right? So 25 times 2.5 equals times 16. That's a thousand dollars a person. Yep. Right. Yep. That is three grand on top of, on top of everything else that I need to do publishing wise. So mm-hmm. like, that's not insignificant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But also like worthwhile, right? Like mm-hmm. 100%. That's the, I, I really, I should talk about this more, but I'm really a proponent of like these actual plays not coming to the table, like for, because we love the game, let's play it and put it out. Like, no, this is content creation. Like mm-hmm. figure out how to get everyone dollars. Yep. Yeah, especially with people who are as busy as Alex and B and Jeff. Like yeah. these are people who are signing on to the project because they dig what I do. Mm-hmm. But they're really busy people in their own right, and they have their own irons and their own fires. And yep. I am benefiting from their reach and influence in mm-hmm. promoting all of this. Mm-hmm. They definitely are getting compensated. Absolutely, absolutely. It's all that's exactly what's paying for too. Not only just ability, but also like what what am I tapping into by ha- making this happen? Right? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. You want to move on to yeah. my, design, my, my die question? Yeah. Yeah. So we could probably tie both of these. Cause I think there's, there's kind of a tip in here cause we talked a lot about, so Tracy, welcome to, I think I'm going to smash together both diners, dives and dungeons. Nope. I messed that up. I'm trying to open it for the exact title. Diners, dungeons and dives. Did mm-hmm. I do it right the first time? Nope. No. Okay, cool. <laughs> That's, That's okay. what I thought. <laughs> uh, but also the TLDR tip because so give 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 a brief exam introduction of DD&D. Diners Dungeons and Dives is a campaign frame that you can apply to any type of RPG that you are using that reframes what you're doing as a road movie reality show wherein you are filming an episode of a fantasy version of diners drive-ins and dives featuring featuring everyone's favorite guy fietti so yeah it's basically a a way to kind of do that it's just a lens to look at your campaign through Mm -hmm. to do that kind of thing with no mechanical underpinnings at all right it's all thematic yep what's very cool about this game something i've been thinking about recently producing as well and why i'd also sort of because you're a writer as well as a game designer in theory so, i have i have written and published a novel yes <laughs> <laughs> you have done it you are a writer you are a confirmed writer at least in my eyes it's all Fair relative enough. yeah but you do a lot of framework st- system building as well mm-hmm. and so in addition to this game and the tip i've been thinking about producing something that's I do a lot of research on like narrative design, like plot structure, things, you know, the midpoint reflection, the three act structure, the five act structure, the seven act structure, the hero's journey, the Dan Harmon. I I really hope you weren't going to say hero's journey, but you did. It's okay. It's it. Listen, it exists out there. There's three different versions of it and it is a narrative structure. may not be the best one, but I, what I want to do is make something that sort of reframes it to RPGs and says, Hey, 
if you're looking to do this style of game, here's like the minimum number of sessions you're looking and what do you need to accomplish with the players over the course of this? Yes. That's the kind of product I want to produce. I'm over here just nodding vigorously. (laughs) You know, it's, you know, Dan Harmon's story circle is eight steps long over like a TV episodic thing. You can accomplish the whole thing in one session. It's like a perfect one shot framework to work off of right mm-hmm. or the hero's journey has like 38 steps in its truest form or what 64 i don't know i didn't read the thousand faces and i don't care i read the christopher vogler version that has like 32 steps or whatever but you know that's gonna be a lot more sessions to try and get under your belt so talking about diners and dungeons and dives and how it's like a focal zoom in to use for really Almost you could use it for really any campaign or setting. It doesn't Mm -hmm. just have to be tavern-style adventures. What do you think about when you think about these framework games? What do you think you have to provide to the players of the game when when you're thinking about writing this or constructing this? What do you know you have to include? What's the baggage that comes with thinking about creating a framework game? So I think that it's a matter of buy-in and theme, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's a way to get everybody on the same page. And this is a a huge reflection of the group that I play with, right? This is the group that dove into running a tavern in Dragon Heist. So Mm. the idea of framing what we're doing as going to film an episode of a reality TV show is like bread and butter for us. That's, Mm -hmm. it's great. So you have to know that for whatever specific framework you are going to write, it is specific. It's not a universal application. This is not Mm going to work for every group, nor should it. Mm-hmm. So you're looking to tap into things that work for the people you are around, or you're looking to provide something for that audience of people, right? This is for people who like uh, road style reality, quote unquote TV, where you that involves it's, it's a it's a it's a pretty specific kind of thing, but that's okay. It's what I I wanted to make. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is helpful and that you sort of touched on with the the narrative structure is I am a huge, huge fan of figuring out with my group at a, on a metatextual level, what is the end goal of all of this? Yeah. Right. Yeah. When, when we are, go, when you're going into this villain's lair, what do you want to accomplish mm-hmm. more, more than what you want to accomplish? What's the final outcome you all want to have happen at this table? right? Mm -hmm. Oh, you want to make sure that you secure this thing? Fantastic. As the game master, I'm going to make sure you do that. We know you're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. The question is how, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Some of my favorite sessions with this particular group have been all flashback sessions. Like that's how we handle Mm -hmm. heists Mm because dragon heist has no heists in it. (laughs) Not a one. So don't get me started, dude. Well, so, so we, so we made some heists, right? They decided they wanted to, to have a score. So they knew that they were going to steal some Omnian fire wine, some, some bullshit I made up. Right. Mm -hmm. And they got to, like, they actually did the boost. They got it into a a magical wagon and they hit it someplace. I then fast forwarded and I said, okay, it's two days later. You all have, I said, how much fire wine do you have on you right now? Two days after you hit it someplace so you could get the heat off you. And they said, oh, we've got, you know, uh, a barrel and a half left of the 10. And I'm like, okay, cool. What we're going to do now for this session is figure out how you only have a barrel and a half left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it was 
awesome. We got to do, we got to go and frame scenes and we're like, okay, well we have three more barrels to get rid of. How are we going to do that? What's the, what's the funniest way to handle that shit? Uh And, and that's what we did. Right. So when you're providing a framework for somebody, it's okay to say, here's your episode structure, right? You're going to have your intro bit. You're going to have this segment. You're going to have this meeting with this guest. You're going to have this and the episode ends here. Mm-hmm. sweet, you now have a structure you can speak into. You can breathe into this and let it breathe back. And you've got a give and take that may, yeah, you, you, you're on camera. You've got to finish the show, but you might have a black eye and three broken teeth, you know, but like, how are you going to get there is a very important question. And I think that a lot of groups struggle with the idea because there's this really trad idea of, oh God, we can't metagame. The players can't know anything about the overall plot. Screw that. Mm -hmm. I want the players to help me figure out what the elements of the plot are. Mm -hmm. But it's just the elements, right? It's it's just the the tent poles, if you will. It's kind of like my world building thing. What are the things we know specifically need to happen? We need to have a big knockout fight here. We need to have this over here. We need to have this bit over here. And the ending needs to look like this cool. Let's all figure out how that happens. Mm -hmm. And it gives you things to aim for. Even if you don't hit them right on, you have still constructed something collaboratively that gives a lot more satisfying things to your players because they're not hoping you hit their desires for a session. Mm -hmm. You're going to hit them because you ask them what they are. Yeah. Right. It, it would, it's, this is going to be a weird analogy. If you're, if you're younger, close your ears. It would be like trying to have sex with someone without asking them what turns them on. Yeah. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> Just guess. Yeah. That, <laughs> Just that, floundering around in the darkness. Yeah. It's like here, here is my idea of what we're going to be doing. And yeah. you're like, I, I hope you dig this. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. You have a conversation about what works and what doesn't. And what everyone's expectations are. Mm-hmm. This is not, and, and, and especially when consent is a must, right, mm-hmm. to carry this metaphor forward, you have to go and make sure that everyone's on the same page, everyone's still buying in, everyone is, is down with what's, with what's happening. I think a lot of RPG advice gets boiled down to this kind of thing, but you assume it only happens once. Right. Okay. We're going to talk about the top of the campaign, what everybody wants, what are, you know, what kind of stories do we want to tell, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You have, you can have that check in every session, right? Because these are people you're talking about. Yeah. You know, in the, in the times when we were playing in someone's dining room, we would all get together and be like, I'd be like, okay, how's everyone feeling tonight? Where's everyone's energy level? You know, there are times when we would just scrub the session and hang out. Because we're not feeling it. When we were recording the audio, like there is something incumbent about being on for the session. And so sometimes I'll say, Hey, we need to get this episode out. We're just going to go for an hour. We're going to get this done. And and then we end up going a little bit longer because it's working, right? People Mm -hmm. know there's an end point. They know that they're, this isn't going to last four hours, right? You're setting expectations up front and, and making a framework is all about doing that and presenting that framework to someone else in a, in a textual form so they can look at it and go, cool, is this framework going to work for my group? You know, it's, it's, it's just, it's about setting and meeting expectations. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's my, 
like it applies not just to framework games, but it's, it's any game, right? You want to tell people what the experience is going to be like. That's part of how you sell a thing. You know, you want to know what you're going to get out of this. And so you have to build that stuff into your game in the text. You have to make sure your mechanics bend toward evoking that kind of experience. That's why D and D functionally speaking isn't a, it's a game, but it's also not. Mm-hmm. It's a method of interacting with fiction that you all are creating as you're playing, mm-hmm. but the mechanics of the game don't incentivize many things except for hitting monsters over the head until their golden XP come out. Yeah. Does um, it have HP? I don't care about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like the mechanics don't bend towards telling a certain kind of story. Mm-hmm. You have to make those decisions on your own. Games like Apocalypse World, they tell a specific kind of story and you are to run it in a specific kind of way or you're not running Apocalypse World. And that can mm-hmm. seem pretty prescriptive and prohibitive, but there's nothing wrong with not running Apocalypse World. Vincent Baker is just telling you in the text, look, I'm being explicit about this. Mm-hmm. This is how this game functions. If you want to run this game, do it this way. Mm-hmm. It's fine if you deviate, just know you're not playing Apocalypse World. And people took a lot of umbrage with that statement back in the day. I think now people get that a lot more readily. Like, games are procedural things. If you follow the procedures, you're going, you should get a reliable outcome. Yeah. In terms of experience and and time spent. If you don't follow the procedures, expect things to go weird. And if your game doesn't have procedures to follow then it's just, it's it's something else. D&D is a something else at this point in time. I think 4th mm. edition had all that stuff. 4th edition said, here's how you do a narrative arc. Here are different kinds of players. Here are the roles they're going to occupy. These are what these roles do. This is the kind of experience you're going to get when you play a striker or when you play a, a, a controller or whatever. And the D&D community hated it, mm-hmm. by and large. You know, because it's not D&D. D&D was always just a different kind of thing. Yeah. And games, you know, I think there's room obviously for different kinds of things. D&D is wildly successful and there's a lot of reasons for that. You can make games that are different kinds of things. I think Numenera is a different kind of thing. I don't think the mechanics really speak to that. Fate, like there's, fate is a little bit more intentional, right? Because when you invoke an aspect and spend a fate point, you get a mechanical thing for it. Mm-hmm. So if you want to highlight these narrative things that are true about you or about the environment you're in, there's a mechanical engagement with that. That really works for me, right? That's, that's part of why I dig that system so much. So fate tells you not what the thematic experience is going to be like, but that the mechanical experience is going to reinforce the narrative things that are true and vice versa. So that that's like, a gray area that works really well because if you're ready to bring your own themes, you can find them reinforced. Mm -hmm. (coughs) But a lot of indie games focus really, really hard on what's the experience I want. Let's figure out how to get there, be it emotional, experiential, what have you. And you have to decide if you want your game to do that kind of thing. It has to be set up to do it. That sounds reductive, but like, 
It's true. If Mm -hmm. you have a die roll for the sake of a die roll, what is the die roll actually telling you? Mm -hmm. If you have a die roll that functions to engage a, a bit of mechanical narrative goodness that you've created, cool, you now know what that die roll does. And you know whether or not you need it in your game. It's not just there for the sake of games needing to have some type of randomization in them. Mm-hmm. There's two things, two, two things that I think this all boils down to is one, make it obvious. I think what D and D doesn't do is it doesn't make it obvious. Mm-hmm. The other thing is specificity. So like you don't, <laughs> you don't go into a movie guessing what it's going to be like the trailer has you know the back of the book has presented a certain sort of style of movie to you and that is what you're getting now sometimes m night Shyamalan or like oh shit what's his name torino no toronto no tarantino thank you there it is tarantino toronto everyone is rolling over in their chairs right now totinos i love his pizza rolls yeah (laughs) they you know what did i what did i watch Water dance? What was that water movie? The Shape of Water? The Shape of Water, thank you. Trailer made it look like a thrilling monster movie. I didn't know it was going to be a love story. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had no idea. That's an example of sort of twisting that expectation. But generally, what I'm saying is that there needs to be an obviousness and a specificity because at the end of the day, you're trying to provide an experience. And if that experience is cloudy, there can be a lot of mixed messages at the table, during mm-hmm. purchase, in consumption. You know, in the example of D&D, it is not a specific nor obvious game in that it is not obvious or it's not trying to obviously present itself as a war game. Ultimately, it is a war game. You mm-hmm. are enacting the miniatures to operate on a you know, on a grid system and initiate attacks that deal with HP and experience. All of the role play is heavy lifted by the players. Mm-hmm. It is also not a specific thing while taverns and things are present in sort of like that style of trad gaming. They've brought to the table guilds of, of Ravnica. They've brought Theros. They've brought, you know, sword and sandals, sci-fi. They try to introduce sci-fi adventures with the, um, Ooh, Kalesh Laboratory. That may not be mm-hmm. the word for it, but it's like, this is a jetpack. Figure it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. But but the game isn't really structured to help you with that sort of genre. So it lacks both obviousness and specificity in the terms of like other games. Like when I think about Blades in the Dark, it has very obvious mechanics. You're dealing with stress and harm and coin. And like it tells you like this, these are the things the game cares about because these are the things you're going to be receiving as a reward loop. It's also specific. This is industrial revolution, uh, Victorian era with ghosts. You know, you've mm-hmm. seen Penny Dreadful. You've seen Mother Mother Effing Peaky Blinders. You've seen uh, Crimson Peaks. Those you've, are the... You've it, played it provides- Dishonored. Yeah, you've played exactly. You've played Dishonored. You know exactly what you're going to rip into. So, like, I think when we talk about frameworks, framework games, or really, like, creating a powerful thematic in the first place, I think these two things that you've been talking about are creating obvious mechanics that tie into that theme and creating specific mechanics that tie into that theme. And those Mm -hmm. two things act as pillar for the design. Exactly. And if you do that with your game, you don't need my framework. Yeah. Right? That's why that's why Dungeons Diners and Dives or yeah I see I almost messed it up Dunge- Dungeons <laughs> Diners and Dives works is because it provides obvious specificity 
to a game that does not have it by nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I, in fact, what I'm probably going to do at some point in time is revise Dungeons Diners and Dives into its own game. Mm-hmm. Because at this point in time in my design career, I am uninterested in, in providing specificity to D&D 5e. Yeah. <laughs> like, I like playing it with my group because it's my group and it's a lingua franca for us, right? Yeah. We don't need to learn new mechanics. We know how to run it, so we like it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it's easy for us because mm-hmm. we just do that together. We play other stuff too, but like D&D is always simple for us. I'm not necessarily interested in trying to change the way that other people play D&D. Mm-hmm. So like, I think it's a cool concept. I'm glad I came up with it. I'd also just kind of like to make it its own game about yep. being a delicious dungeon esque fantasy, like food crawl. Like yeah. that sounds really neat to me. So at some point in time, I'm probably going to revise it and keep the same name. But I, I love that. I want it. I've always wanted to play like, what was it? I wanted to play order of the mutant blood hunter, Matt Mercer's thing, but I wanted to play as like a lizard folk chef who just mm-hmm. went to places and like chopped up monsters and ate them. And that was the mutagens. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's yeah. like that kind of thing is a lot of fun, a lot of fun to do. And I think that food type food based stories touch on a lot of cross cultural things. Yep. Everyone loves food. Everyone loves to bring their own food traditions to the table, you know? And so everyone gets to sort of speak into this. Even if you're someone who just orders pizza, Cool. You play a techie who always is not interested in the food that's being made for the show. You're yeah. trying to find the closest takeout joint. Fantasy and, DoorDash. Let it rip. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, but but in general, the the tip becomes if you want your mechanical thing you're designing to be a toolkit that people can place whatever thematic lens over it they want to, fine and good. I don't know that the landscape really supports that as like a commercially viable thing. Mm-hmm. nowadays because the only reason D and Pathfinder get away with it is because of tradition because mm-hmm. they're established things. Same goes for a lot of the other big RPGs like the system behind call of Cthulhu doesn't incentivize going on an investigation. You're just doing it because the game says to, and you're rolling yeah. percentile dice Shadowrun doesn't incentivize going on a shadow run. You're just rolling massive pools of D sixes and doing a lot of math. Yeah. Right, the system <laughs> doesn't reinforce what's happening. Fate is, like I said, on the edge of that, and so mm-hmm. that's why I'm I'm harvesting things that I like about fate for some of the other stuff that I'm doing because I want certain kinds of stories to be told. Fate mm-hmm. Accelerated, as presented in Dresden Files, Accelerated has a lot of stuff that helps you tell the kind of story you want to tell because conditions as a mechanical piece are on off switches for these kinds of specific narrative things happening all the time. Mm-hmm. It works really, really well. I love it. It's my favorite iteration of traditional fate. I did it with iron at accelerated. I cribbed that entire setup. So like if you want your game to, to evoke certain feelings or have certain experiences happen, I think you have to at least start from the same kind of place fate does where you have mechanical things that, if, that bump into the narrative and create feedback loops, right? Where you're reinforcing the kinds of experiences you want to see happen at the table. That's the, the furthest out starting point from like obvious specificity. Mm-hmm. If you are really wanting to make a specific kind of thing. And I think that like the heart of this are lyric games, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which are 
so obvious and so specific that you are often not portraying a character. You are often not engaging with mechanics aside from physically or mentally doing the thing the game tells you to do. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a game that Taylor LaBresh and Adira Slattery wrote that is called Draw a Square on the Ground and Stand in the Middle of the Square and Yell Sex is Here. That's the game. It is obvious, it is specific, and that's it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, it, yeah. You're, you're, you're going to get a reliably repeatable experience. <laughs> I... I am in love. I didn't know it existed. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. Uh, and and you've talked about Adira's chair before, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. The the explicit details of the experience are not going to be the same. Mm-hmm. But the obvious and repeatable experience is terror for you and any observers when the mm-hmm. chair won't let you go. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I think like that's your, your framing of this, of things as needing to be both obvious and specific is brilliant because for the first time since I've been playing games or working on them, there's a continuum of games that this describes that encompasses all of gaming a hundred percent of it. Cause it goes all the way from less obvious and less specific in D and D and these other mechanical machines that don't Mm -hmm. functionally do much Mm -hmm. all the way down to standing in a square that you've drawn on the ground and yelling sex is here. (laughs) But, but lyric games live in that space. They're hyper obvious and hyper specific. Mm -hmm. And most of games fall somewhere in between all of that. In fact, I would, I would literally argue that all of games fall somewhere on that spectrum. Yeah, as you sort of point out, I imagine like this X, Y axis situation of like how obvious or specific is a game in terms of its thematics or what it's trying to make happen here. And, you know, that's what's important to also say about this is that the game design is still an art form at like the very Mm -hmm. end of the day. And so the projections that people put on those art forms are going to be different. There may be some people who disagree with how obvious or specific I think D&D or Pathfinder is they may say, you know, they may be in love with Pathfinder and say, well, it does this thing specifically. And then how specific is that? And the point is that I think that we're both trying to make here is that this is a, a gray scale, a gradual scale that can sort of encompass those two things and help guide your design intentions, right? Yeah. If you want a game that's very like, loose and narrative it may have very obvious mechanics but may not be specific right it may Mm -hmm. uh, i think for me i would call fate very obvious like from what i've read about fate i would say it's like highly obvious but like lower specific you know it has Mm -hmm. lots of plug-in tools for you to make using aspects and conditions and things like that 100 percent. where as i would call Numenera very specific but it doesn't have very obvious like gears to engage those things with you know there's like random I I I always have like a sort of bounce off where games require the GM to make up a difficulty number Mm because that's going to be different depending on who's projecting onto the game right where as I prefer games that are like if this is the thing that is present here, it is a two difficulty. There is no question. Everyone knows what they're engaging with here, mm-hmm. right? That's very specific. Whereas I think games that that sort of have this imaginated difficulty are not very obvious in mechanical nature. 
Yeah, I, I think if you're talking about an XY spectrum, you're talking about obvious and specific on one side, or mm-hmm. you have obviousness, you have specificity, you also have high mechanics and you have low mechanics. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 that gives you quadrants that everything can like can fall in. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's good. I think that I think a, a little bit awakened here, awakened tree spell has been cast on wonderful me. you're 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 a trant now <laughs> i'm literally cr4 let's go you're, you're jeremy gagebeard <laughs> <laughs> welcome children well with that beautiful tip i think that's going to bring us to the tail end of the show the long okay. tail end of the show sitting at 215 here pretty good tracy pretty not bad good. not bad at all not bad how long uh, can i make my outro <laughs> <laughs> Let's fluff it up. Go ahead, plug yourself, tell people, everyone, where they can find you once again. Uh, All these show notes that they are about to provide are going to be down below with links for your access listeners. And thank you again, Tracy, for being here. Of course. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. As again, I will say, I am Tracy Barnett. You can find me online anywhere at The Other Tracy. That is T R A C Y. That is me on Twitter. That is my website. Patreon.com slash The Other Tracy is where you can engage with the lovely model that I provided earlier, and you can pay what you can to literally get everything that I make. You can also find me at TheOtherTracy.itch.io, and you can buy all of my games if you prefer to support in more concrete terms. Uh, again, obvious and specific is going to itch. <laughs> <laughs> right obvious and unspecific is supporting me on patreon mm-hmm. Ooh. right yeah uh, you can find me bouncing around the brain trust discord i came there because jeremy mentioned it on the podcast my dms are open you can reach out to me if you want uh, consultation help i do not charge for game consultation as long as the person is not taking too much advantage of my time i'm happy to talk about your game on a video chat hour or so no worries if you want to engage my services professionally, then I uh, write, I edit, I do layout, I do art direction, I do project management, I do Kickstarter con- consulting, all that good stuff. And I am willing to talk about all of that stuff and would enjoy talking about all of that stuff with you if you have a need and you dig what I'm putting down. I think that is everything. Oh, yes. And I have a podcast called 15 Minutes of Fave, which... Not too long after this episode, I'm going to ask Jeremy if he would like to be a guest on. Oh, maybe it happened during the episode. Look at that. Obvious and specific. Does he have to say yes now? Not at all. The answer can, yeah. the, your answer can be uh, unspecific and undefined. Tracy, you would make me the happiest man in the world. <laughs> well, then we'll work out a time for you to come on. Awesome. Uh, you are uh, yeah. here first, everyone. That's it. That's what I got. All right. Very cool. Once again, everyone, thank you for coming out to this episode, for listening. I learned a ton today, and I hope you did too. And we will see you next time. Say bye to the people, Tracy. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. (sighs) (laughs) Jeremy never gets applause, so. Aw. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Tracy and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Tracy or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the community Discord server. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon. 
where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.